My parents were with us this morning, and uh, they said, if we'd known it was going to be that cold, we'd have worn our winter clothes. How many people were cold this morning? Raise your hand. Really? Wow. Okay. Elders, pay attention. I'm just, I don't know. I don't have to tell you other than I didn't just, I just didn't notice it. We are in Exodus chapter 20, although you don't need to turn there. Uh, I'd ask that you turn to Joshua chapter 6 uh, in anticipation of where we're going to be in just a little bit. Grateful that you're here tonight. Those of you who've been to Lads to Leaders all weekend, I know you're exhausted. I know you're worn out. I'm grateful for all the work that you do. If you nod off, nobody's going to think anything. So now, you ready? One, two, three. Sleep thou, right? You guys could just go out and that's okay. Uh, but you, you've done uh, a lot already this weekend, and it, this is going to be very tough to, uh, to even slow down to do anything like this. But you've already done some great stuff and appreciate what you're doing with your kids and investing your time and your money in this effort. Um, that is something that needs to be seen and appreciated, and so I'm grateful um, for the whole experience. We've reached finally the end of the Ten Commandments. Number 10, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, male servant or female servant or ox or donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. We, we tend to look at the Sermon on the Mount and hear Jesus say, you know what, you've heard it said this, but I'm telling you, don't even lust. When it comes to committing adultery or lust and steal, don't even want those things. And don't just not murder, but don't even hate somebody. And we have a tendency to think that Jesus is the one who goes to the heart of this. The Ten Commandments were just about your hands. And Jesus is about your heart. That's not really true, because when you get to the Tenth Commandment, it is so totally different from any of the others. You shall not covet. You shall not want what you should not have. How do you like that? Coveting. Yearning to possess or to have something. You are not just not to commit adultery or steal. You are not to want to commit adultery or steal. Jesus really is elaborating on commandment number 10. Now, the funny thing about this commandment is how could you ever identify when a neighbor is actually breaking it? I might suspect it, but it's unenforceable. If I run down the street like Barney Fife and say, citizen's arrest, he's coveting, how would I ever prove that? You can never prove the 10th commandment. It's unenforceable. No one's ever been brought up in charges of coveting. So if it's unenforceable, why is it in the Big Ten? Interesting question. The other thing is it's, a, it's an accomplice sin. That's what I would call it. It goes along with, it generates or motivates other sins. Before you steal, you covet. Before you commit adultery, you covet. This takes place in the mind before anything else takes place in the behaviors of the body. So Jesus, when he comes along and he attacks lust and anger, he's not adding or elaborating on the 10th commandment. He's just addressing number 10. Coveting is a natural term. It's a neutral, I should say, a neutral term. It's not a negative thing. It's to have a great desire for something that belongs to somebody else. That great desire is not in itself wrong. We desire all sorts of things. God made us with desires. But when those desires begin to take control of us and tell us what we're going to do with them and what they're going to be, even when there are boundaries established, that's when it's coveting. The problem with covetousness in commandment 10 
is you want something that is owned by someone else and there's a boundary around it. A God-honoring boundary, a God-recognized boundary around it. This person is married to a friend of yours, therefore out of bounds. You can't even want that. It's their house, it's their car. You can't even want that. But you see, when you sin, God's boundaries don't stop you. You can't stop that. And you go right over, right through the stop signs God put up, and, and that's when it becomes sin. So I'm gonna, I, I just want to describe this with an observation. When you want a blessing in such a way that you disregard the blesser you covet, or when you turn a good into God, it becomes coveting. And we're going to look at a couple situations. You're in Joshua chapter 6, and you know what Joshua chapter 6 is probably as they're about to embark on the taking of the promised land. And the instructions God gives in chapter 6 are very clear. Fifth, uh, on, uh, on verse 15 of Joshua chapter 6, On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city seven times. It was only on that day they had marched around the city seven times. At that seventh time, the priests had blown the trumpets. Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. I want you to know everything that's in this city belongs to God. It's called the ban. The ban. It's a boundary around it. It is God's stuff. Now, it looks like it's the stuff of the people of Jericho, but I'm telling you, when the walls come down, that's God's stuff. There's a boundary now. God says there's a boundary around it. It's my stuff. They go on then in chapter 7 to, after they took Jericho in this amazing victory, obviously it's God, and they go and they fight this little town of Ai. There's more letters in the name than there are people who live there who can defend it. Ai is this dinky little town, and they should be able to take it like this. They don't even send the whole army, and they get whipped, and several die. And you're like, what, what, what happened here? And, and, and they learn by a series of these practices what happened. Join me in chapter 7, verse 19. And they start all these clans passing by. Joshua said to Achan, when, it was, when Achan was the one pulled out from the whole the tribe of Israel. My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me what you've done. Don't hide it from me. Now listen to the anatomy of covetousness in verse 20 and 21. Achan answered Joshua, truly I've sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did. And here it is. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and then I took them, and they're hidden inside my tent. This is the trajectory or the life direction of covetousness. I saw something with my eyes. I set my heart upon it. I coveted it, and then I took it. And what he's sitting there thinking is, it would take me forever to be able to give my wife this beautiful Babylonian robe that would make a great anniversary gift. I could never afford it. I'll never be able to in my life. But here it is sitting out here. And what's God going to care about one Babylonian robe? I saw, I coveted, and I took. And so he takes something that belongs to God. He steals from God what God said was his. Now, we're going to look at a couple lessons from this. 
The desire, when the desire for things overcomes your desire to honor God's boundaries, it's called coveting. It should no longer have been a quandary from him, for him when God said, this is now mine. When you come into a congregation, even if, if you were a single person, this would be true, and you find out that lady right there, attractive lady, is married, there's a boundary that goes up that says, no longer I must dismiss this as a possibility. That's a boundary around it. That is somebody else's vehicle. That is somebody else's Bible. That is somebody else's piece of gum. I don't care what it is. It's a boundary around it that I cannot cover. But your eyes stay focused on it. Your eyes keep looking at that thing you'd really like to have, regardless of the fact that there's a boundary of protection around it. You start staring at it, and that's all that you can think of, and it consumes you, and it overrides all spiritual sensitivities and realities in your life. You keep looking at it. You keep looking at that thing in the material realm and give no consideration to the spiritual and then it becomes costly. Because not only did it cost him his life and his family, it cost the nation a victory and several lives that were lost in the, in the process. Coveting costs people. Those of you who think, oh, that person is somebody else's wife but just wants to be with her, and you do that and you think that's going to be okay and it's not going to hurt anybody, it's going to destroy a lot of things. And the boundary is around it. Once two people say the words, I do, there's a boundary of protection around them defined by God and everybody should honor it. There's another story that articulates this too. 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it's the same kind of language here, and I want you to see these verbs because these verbs carry the story, right? It's action words. 2 Samuel chapter 11 and once again, we have this story, this time David in the spring of the year, the time when the kings go to battle. David sent Joab and his servants with them and all Israel, and, and they did all their victory. But David, David stayed at Jerusalem. That's a prerogative that only a king could, could, could uh, ascribe to. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he, here's the first verb, he saw. There may have been very little else David could have done he may not have been able to help seeing this woman, but he could help keeping seeing this woman. He needs to distract his mind from something else. As with Achan, what he needs to realize is that this is out of bounds. He's already married, but even in a, even in a, a polygamous culture like this, even at that, you've got to watch. So it says that David, it says he saw her, right? And David sent and inquired, step number two. Today... The sent and inquired doesn't require you to go through your general Joab or anybody else to find out about her. Today, sent and inquired means I checked on Facebook her status. I started studying her and stalking her a little bit on Facebook just to kind of see what's out there. And guys, if you start doing that, if you're a married person and you're looking at someone else on Facebook just to see what's going on with them in their life, that is a problem. That's kind of like coveting. That's sinning. You don't need to be inquiring about that because there's a boundary. What he finds out after he inquires, one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah? You know what he's saying? There's boundaries, David. The boundaries are here. 
Don't step over the boundaries. And yet he sent for and then he slept with this woman. And where is the sin? Is it in the he saw? Probably not. But somewhere between he saw and he sent and inquired about, sin takes root and then it produces death at the end. What you learn from David in this story with Bathsheba about covetousness, and you know the story, David already had so much on his own. God had blessed him with this kingdom, a time of peace. He had blessed him with all these possessions. But no matter how much God blesses you, you are never immune from wanting even more. It's true, isn't it? Here's how he used to say, these teenagers used to say, these men about looking at other women when they're married. Well, just because I've ordered off the menu doesn't mean I can't look at the menu. Every time I've ever ordered off a menu in a store, in a restaurant, they immediately take up the menu. Does that not happen with you? That you order, and once you order, they take that menu up. It's not time to think about it anymore. The time to think about it was before this. Once the menu's taken up, you just, you just be satisfied with what you ordered. But here's the funny thing. Isn't it something amazing in Hollywood that all these people, and you're thinking, man, she is so beautiful. He's going to be happy the rest of his life. And it never lasts. They go from one to the other to the other. I'm going to tell you about human nature, and we all know it's true. You can never be so blessed that you won't look around for some more. At least that's the human tendency. There's only one thing the rich man wants. More. There's only one thing the human person ever wants. When they've been richly blessed by God, there's only one thing they want, and, and it's more. When David was confronted, it was clear that covetousness was a personal affront to God. You know why? God says, David, I've given you so much, and I would have given you more. But you decided what I'd given you was not enough. And so you're going to go out on your own and take care of what I haven't been providing. And God takes that as a personal offense, and he should. Finally, it came with a cost, and it nearly cost him his entire family. There's one story I just want to make reference to. It's the Naboth story, and here's the two things I think we learned from Naboth is coveting begins with entitlement. I deserve this. There's something I deserve, and what I've got, my wife is not good enough for me, so I deserve. I work hard, and I, I live a good life, so I deserve something. There's a sense of entitlement, so there's King Ahab wanting Naboth's vineyard. Oh, I deserve this. I'm king. I should have whatever I want, and his wife feeds that ego too. We all come with this sense of entitlement. And it causes him to disrespect his fellow man and even murder him. I know we know all this. This is stuff that we've been taught all our lives. We need to say it once in a while. Coveting is wrong. It's when you set, you determine what your heart is going to set its druthers on. I train my heart on what I should want. I love this. Psalm 141. The psalmist prays to God, do not let my heart be drawn to what is evil so that I take part in wicked deeds, doing things, what does it say? Doing, going along with those who are evildoers. 
God, I, I want you to regulate my heart so that I don't set it on doing something that's wrong. I don't want to set it on something I shouldn't have. I don't want to set it on a person I shouldn't want. I don't want to set it on anything that would distract from your reputation in my life. Let's pray that God can help us regulate what our heart wants. What do we set our hearts upon? What do we want to want? What do we not want to even want? Those are things we should pray about. Those are things we should meditate on. But more than all this, we need to talk about how we can develop this in our lives. And so I think Paul does the, the best thing for us when he says, I learned contentment from how I lived my life. The best thing, the best antidote to coveting is contentment, being satisfied with what God gives me. And Paul says this is a learned trait. This is not a special miraculous gift from God. This is something you learn from in life. And you learn over the years that some of the things you always wanted, that if I just had this, I'd be happy for the rest of my life. Don't work that way. Most of those things we got for Christmas between the ages of 7 and 15, and nearly all of those things are now in the landfill. So let me just give you some thoughts. God is with you in the situation you're in. Whatever the situation you're in, God is with you and he can make you content. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5. Notice this connection here. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Don't let yourself hatch these plans for getting rich quick or getting that that you really want. Don't, don't start coming. Why? Because he says, God said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Why is this saying from God connected to the love of money and being content? He's wanting you to know if you have a little and you're struggling with a little, nevertheless, God is with you in that and he will not leave you, he will not forsake you. If you have a lot, even in that, God is with you, he will not forsake you. He just wants you to know God can take care of you in whatever circumstance you're in and there's something he's developing in you in this time. God's with you in your situation. Number two, honor all of God's boundaries. Know what his boundaries are. If you meet a person who's married, they're out of bounds for you. I don't care what they look like. I don't care what they do. They're out of bounds for you. If something belongs to somebody else, out of bounds. And if it's out of bounds, take it out of your mind. Distract yourself. Tell yourself no. They've got God's right of ownership, not me. And no amount of desire and no amount of planning will change that. You've got to learn to tell yourself no about some of the desires you have. Number three, practice and teach that life does not exist in the abundance of stuff. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's all temporary. The Greek philosopher Epicurus said this, if you want to make a man happy, add not to his possessions, but take away from his desires. Take away from his desires. Life is not about having everything that you could possibly want. Number four. This one I want to spend some time with. Train your heart on what it is to desire. I think it's true. This is the hardest part of conversion. It's a lot easier to get somebody in the water and be baptized than it is to help them develop a brain transplant that all Christians are required to pursue. 
Let me give you some verses on this screen. Write them down and put them in your head, okay? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind that you may be able to prove was that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We've got to start thinking different than this world thinks. We've got to start training ourselves in a different way of evaluating people, in a different way of training ourselves on what we should want and what we shouldn't. Train yourself what appetites that you can have and what appetites you must starve. You must train yourself to think different. We do not think like the commercials. We do not think like the, the TV shows we watch. We think like Jesus, and it takes an intricate effort from you to transform your brain. You need a brain transplant. That comes along with the Christian faith. Next slide. We memorized this last year. Since you've been raised with Christ, that means you've been baptized. So if you've been baptized, this is your truth. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. If all you ever think about is earthly stuff, you are not transforming your, your mind. You must learn to value what God values. This affects everything. Christian teens should be looking for a different boyfriend and girlfriend than just an earthly teen. They should have different values for what they're looking for in someone else. They just must. You must, you must value somebody who talks different than just anybody else. And I don't care how good looking the guy is, if he does these behaviors that are ungodly, that doesn't need to be the person you set your heart upon. And if you have to marry a person uglier than your level in order to marry a Christian, do it. I'm so tired of this out-of-my-league stuff. Holiness is a lot more important than the fads and the fashions and the happiness that we're being trained and it's crammed down our throat and we're being trained by a world what we're to look for and how we're supposed to think. Next screen. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self which is being corrupted in its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. You see, there's a brain transplant. Before you take off, or when you take off that old man, it's corrupted desires, it's nastiness, it looks like the world, it's swimming in a sewer, First Peter chapter 4. When you take that old clothing off, before you put the new clothing on, renew your mind, start thinking different, start letting God have way with the way you evaluate and the way you conduct yourself in the way you think. And then you put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We do have a different standard now. Covet that, church. Covet that. Go after that. Change your mind. Next slide. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. Those who live according to the world go watch worldly movies, listen to worldly music, uh, and have worldly goals for themselves and set up all the standards the world has trained them to. But those who live in accordance with the Holy Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. When you're staying up late at night and filling your mind with stuff, is it worldly stuff or spiritual stuff? That's going to determine what kind of person you are. 
We've got to learn how to retrain our hearts to set it upon what God values. What God loves, we should love. What God hates and despises, we should hate and despise. That's how it works as a Christian. And it's hard to do this. The hardest thing in the world, and it's going to take a lifetime to get this. Next slide. You have a whole lot to be grateful for. What business is of us to covet things that we don't have when we have so very much? Shame on us. And if we would spend our time honoring God's commandments to be thankful to God for everything, and everything give thanks to the Lord. It's said in every book of the New Testament, if we would spend our time expressing gratitude, as Terry so beautifully did today as we ended up service today, if you'll thank God more for what you have, you'll want what you don't have less and less until finally it is completely suffocated out of your life. Let's be a grateful people. Let's covet what we already have by the grace of God. And one last thing, and this is the best insight in the world. I think you should covet, but I think you should covet a vision of your future self. Let me give you a test question. What was the only command given in the Garden of Eden? Go ahead. You got, you got permission. I'll give you five seconds. You can talk, and you have to shut up because the Holy Spirit's going to convict you if you keep talking. Okay, so what's the one command given in the Garden of Eden? Okay, everybody's going to say, I have no idea what you said, but I'm just going to pretend like I heard. Someone's going to say, don't eat of that one tree. Well, he does say that. But before he says that, he says, eat of every tree of the garden. Before he says, don't eat of that one, he says, look at these 3,565,872 trees and eat to your heart's content. And then don't eat this one. And what do they do? They eat of the one they shouldn't and avoid all that they should. We're just like that, aren't we? We have all these things we can do and we just keep looking to things we can't. Here's the vision. I want you to covet this. I want you covet to covet this image of yourself, and I want you to pray about it this week. And when you pray about it, I want you to pray about it as, as this vision, okay? You're a person of God who's greatly in the, admired in the church because you have the heart of God. You have that kind of faith that everybody else aspires to. You have a maturity that's weathered through trials and is easily satisfied with whatever that you have. You're a person who loves people and serves people and helps people and is kind and gentle and patient. You're a person who knows the scriptures and lives them and uses those scriptures to encourage other people. There's an image that you can covet to your heart's content. Want that. Want that for yourself. I want to be, when I'm 60, and that's not that far away, when I'm 60, I want to be a person who looks like that. I want to be a person who takes on that image. I want to covet that so much that between now and then, I do the daily things that will make that vision become true. That's what I want to covet. I want my heart to want that. There's nothing wrong with coveting that. So church, covet that image for yourself. 
and do whatever it takes to bring it about. You sp I'm not saying you can't covet. I'm saying you need to covet the right things. And that's what God would say. I'm going to leave you with that one verse we've already said. And I'm just going to say it. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things, want the things, crave the things, long for the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on the junky, earthly, temporary stuff. there's anyone who needs to respond this evening, that for whatever reason you've had a change of heart or a change of thought about your spiritual life and you want to get it right, and the first thing you can do is pay homage to and submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ. If you've done that and you've gone astray and you've wanted things and you've desired things and you've gone after things you have no business going after, now's a good time to make a change as we stand and as we sing.